Welcome to a series of netcasts brought to you by Yale University. Hi, everyone. This is the Yale University Press Podcast, and I'm Michael Hoke. How many of you are organ donors? Maybe you've even been the recipient of a transplant from donated tissue. There's an entire industry behind this, and though many of us may inherently understand the existence of a for-profit cadaver trade, it remains largely invisible as an issue. Dr. Naomi Pfeffer, formerly Professor of Applied Social Science at London Metropolitan University, has written numerous works on history, social policy, and medical ethics. In her new book, Insider Trading, How Mortuaries, Medicine, and Money Have Built a Global Market in Human Cadaver Parts, she seeks to, su- to shine some light on the history of this industry and examine the professional and corporate ethics of it. Naomi, thank you for joining me today. It's my pleasure. So take us back to the early days to start. Um, where did the idea of organ transplanting come from, and what did it look like back when it first started? Well, organ, the history that I'm concerned with is really uh, separate, um, precedes, that of organ transplantation. It involves, um, it began mostly with skin and bone, and it was in the late 19th, early 20th century. And it took off to some extent during the First World War, when surgeons from all over um, the world tried to uh, repair the terrible injuries suffered by the combatants in trench warfare. And then in peacetime, they began to, uh, surgeons began to adopt these procedures and mostly using stuff taken from living people, either what is known as surgical waste, which they would, uh, that, that is stuff removed during an operation, or from volunteers. So for instance, Burns dressings, burns wounds might be dressed with skin provided by many, many um, volunteers who would go through terrible pain and suffering in order to help someone who had some horrible injury. Yeah, and and what other ways was this uh, surgical waste used? You you uh, document an earlier case, I think, in the eighteen hundreds. Of, uh, of a, I guess, a skin graft where skin was taken and put, placed over uh, a young boy who had been burned. And, of course, the skin eventually pe- uh, peels away, and underneath he's left with a fairly healed skin. Um, what were some of the other uh, procedures that were, were going on with the, with the skin and bones? Well, the other uh, body part that I look at is... Uh, cornea transplant, cornea grafting, which um, during the 19th century, surgeons looked for a variety of different materials, tried using a variety of different materials to uh, replace a damaged cornea. A damaged cornea disturbs, is, is not a cause of complete blindness, but it makes seeing things clearly very difficult. And surgeons during the 19th century would try and using cornea taken from animal eyes or sometimes crystal. And 
in the 1920s, a surgeon in Russia called Vladimir Filatov began going into the mortuary to take the eyes out of the corpses there and removing the cornea from them. And it began, and it was from then that eye banking really took off. And you, uh, you talk about how uh, Helen Keller played a role in the rise of eye banking in the United States. Um, how did that come to be? What, what, what's the background of that? And, and what, what was the outcome for eye banking? Well, the Lions Clubs, which I'm sure your American um, listeners will be very familiar with and uh, adopted blindness as their mission. They became Knights of the Blind. And Helen Keller spoke to them at one of their annual meetings. And uh, that was after Helen Keller uh, spoke to them at one of their annual meetings and inspired them to take up the cause of blind people. And they were remarkable in their endeavors. They provided um, white sticks for, for blind people, Braille readers. They, um, they, they, they were great fundraisers. And when iBanking became more feasible um, after the Second World War, um, they began raising funds for all manner of equipment to support iBanking. Um, the containers in which the eyes, the cadaver eyes, are transported. Some lions would transport the eyes themselves. They would um, volunteer as couriers. They also raised considerable funds to set up units in uh, big hospitals to support um, surgeons who wanted to um, develop eye banking. So they were really um, responsible for America leading the, eventually leading the world as um, um, enucleators and exporters of eyes to all manner of places. And is... Um is the rise uh, slightly different in uh, in the UK? How does it how does it um, how does it match up to what was going on here in the US at that time? Well, it's America is incredibly impressive. The eye banking industry in America is phenomenal in its um, in in its uh, energy and in its um, efficiency and in its technical advance. And I'm afraid that the United Kingdom really. Um, is a, um, really is lags a long way behind. The there hasn't been because we haven't had the um, initial input from organisations like the Lions Clubs um, that, that the American Eye Bank has enjoyed. It's really not taken off, and it's become very much a local endeavour. And the government really hasn't um, uh, resourced it in the same way as um, they've resourced other aspects of um, the transplant industry, for instance, organ transplantation. It's been very much a poor relative here. And it's only recently that they've begun considering adopting some of the technical advances that have been pioneered by the American industry. And as far as um, what sort of um, tissue and, and organs can be pulled from uh, a cadaver, for example, 
outside of the more well-known ones, say kidneys and hearts and livers and, and skin and eyes, which we've talked about, uh, what are what are other what else can be reused um, or or uh, repurposed? Well, one of the parts that is the least known but was actually the most widely extracted um, is the pituitary gland, which uh, the collection on both sides of the Atlantic was um, was enormous and has never been equaled. The, it, the pituitary gland lies in the body's most inaccessible place. It lies under the brain, behind the eyes, and to remove it from a corpse requires opening up the skull, lifting out the brain, um, bang, hacking away at the bony cradle in which the pituitary gland rests, and then digging the gland out. Now, from the late 50s till 1985, um, hundreds of thousands of pituitary glands were removed. Uh, at the collections Zenith, in the, in the United Kingdom, one in every eight corpses had its pituitary gland removed. And in the United States, it was one in every 12 corpses. And this is without anyone's knowledge or agreement and the reason why the collection was so successful is in the United States, the National Pituitary Agency, which was financed by the National Institutes of Health, and in the United Kingdom, the Medical Research Council, which is um, funded by the taxpayer, were paying mortuary staff an so-called incentive, but was really a tip, to take out the gland. And so the collections, and, and, and that was a great incentive for them because they're very poorly paid. And um, in 1985, the collection was stopped on both sides of the Atlantic because recipients of the hormone, the growth hormone that was extracted out of the gland, uh, were found to have died of Creutzfeldt-Jakob disease, which is um, um, a horrible disease. I, I should say that the... The uh, glands were used to um, isolate growth hormone for children who were of short stature. Um, they were in, um, that was the main use of them. And despite the fact that these, connect these collections were vast, I find it remarkable that so almost nothing is known about them. And it really led me to wonder why and it made me realize how little people actually know about what goes on in mortuaries which is why really i began to explore what what the conditions are in mortuaries what you know where they are where they're located um who's who works in them what are the working conditions of them uh, 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 what are their working conditions um and and really to try and get the public to ask more questions about what happens to to corpses between death and disposal. Yeah, and uh, I mean, that is a mystery to many, I think, um, whether it's because people don't like to think about it or because it, it is secretive by nature. Um, what, what did you find when you started looking at these mortuaries? What, what's happening when the doors are closed? Well, some corpses um, undergo an autopsy or post-mortem examination, mostly for, for um, ordered by a medical examiner or coroner. 
Um, nowadays, very few um, corpses uh, undergo a, an autopsy for ordered by a doctor because it's in the because it's too expensive and because other diagnostic techniques are used. But increasingly, the law on on the um, determining the accuracy of death certificates has has tightened up, and it necessitates um, some kind of investigation. So a majority of of, of um, autopsies nowadays are ordered by, as I said, by a coroner or a medical examiner. The other, these autopsies are generally quite perfunctory and they are often um, prepared, the corpse is prepared by the mortuary staff. Now, until fairly recently, they were extremely poorly paid and they were on the bottom rung of any kind of medical hierarchy. And they were often, they were often shunned by other workers within hospitals or wherever they were situated, I think because of their association with death and, and, and the fact that they handle corpses, and which is a kind of, it was kind of considered dirty work. So they were, there was very little, there's very little written about what goes on in mortuaries. And, and in order to find out, I've had to really dig quite deep and, and visit quite a, quite a few of them in order to see for myself what the conditions are like. Now, now when you go to a modern mortuary, all you'll see is a wall lined with um, um, these kind of drawers where the corpses are, uh, are kept in um, at a, a low, uh, refrigerated until they're claimed by generally a funeral director and taken away for disposal. But in the past, um, they were they were fairly crude um, places, and I, I should think they were rather unpleasant. And most now, now um, almost invariably, there's a notice on the door forbidding entry to the general public. So you can't. It's not the sort of place that you can easily um, find your way into. They're generally in the bowels of a hospital or or in an anonymous building, and they certainly don't invite investigation. <laughs> And yet, yet, what is very curious is now that a majority of people die outside of their own home. Um, most of us will spend little time, um, maybe a matter of hours or even days, in a mortuary and without anyone knowing what's happening to us. Hmm. Um. And so, do you did you find when you started to look into this? Were you finding a lot of uh, resistance, or or are people are are people sort of eager to tell the story to dispel some of this, or are they are <laughs> hiding something? Well, most of my material is from documented sources. I found mostly it's people, that, you know, um, friends, colleagues. Um, don't want to hear about it. They really don't want to know what happens. And um, I remember one occasion I was explaining, I was in a restaurant um, explaining to a friend what my book was about. And the people on the next table asked me to stop talking about <laughs> it because I was putting them off their dinner. <laughs> so uh, <laughs> that's a, that's not an uncommon response to it. And I, I think people are very uncomfortable um, thinking about um, death and corpses. 
And once you become alerted to it, even the, you know, the, the better known um, use of repurposing of um, cadaver stuff, that is organ transplantation, it tends to be silent about death. It doesn't really talk about um, the fact that the, you know, until fairly recently, it required someone to die to be, um, uh, you know, to become a donor for their for their wishes to be realised, and that and and that the actual um, work required to remove whatever it was that was going to be repurposed from their body. So, the the marketing of 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 organ transplantation, I think, is is to some extent responsible for um, obscuring. Um, what actually happens and um, maybe what they're negotiating with is uh, what they're fearful of is arousing people's um, discomfort, disgust, whatever. Um, but I think it should be explained to people. I think it also should be explained to the recipients, the many millions of people who nowadays are likely to be on the receiving end of um, something that came out of a corpse. I mean, people who have uh, dentistry, who have um, aesthetic cosmetic surgery, who have some kind of orthopedic procedure, it's very, very likely that that will involve something that came out of a cadaver. And yet, I doubt whether they're actually told that that is the case. And, and um, I think that um, it's incumbent upon uh, whoever's doing the procedure to, to enlighten them about what's, what's happening. Going back to this idea that you, just, you talked about, which is uh, you know, very true, is that it's almost as if we don't really think about it or we don't want to think about it. Um, in the book, you have, you've put a, a photo in there I, that, was, uh, that appeared in Life magazine in 1966, and it's these jars of pituitary glands, and there's somewhat something like 30,000 pituitary glands. Uh, and even as I looked at that photograph, it, I didn't really register until you, you mentioned in the book, this is the population of a small town. Um, and yeah, I, I think you're right. You don't, people aren't thinking about it necessarily or don't want to think about it. I, absolutely. It, it's, um, it's very uncomfortable to think about it and, and, um, we're not helped to think about it. I, I found writing the book difficult. It, I had to, um, it was a struggle thinking about death and and um, and corpses, but I think the only way really, I think it's important, it's essential to confront it because the history that I've written is not a conventional medical history, or if it doesn't follow the same kinds of lines that um, the conventional story of of organ trans kidney transplantation, which is a surgeon struggling to find ways of making the procedure work and then and then succeeding and and now how it's you know become re fairly routine um, and successful it's much messier than that and, and and a lot of the mess is to do with uh, the difficulties of of negotiating the corpse it's um 
And also, um, because the corpse, what they're dealing with, is putrescible. Mm. Organs that, that are removed from a cadaver are taken within a matter of hours and, and are trans that are explanted from a cadaver are transplanted within a matter of hours because they, they rely on blood, whereas the stuff that I'm looking at is, does not rely on blood and it can survive and it can be extracted out of a course you know, quite a few hours after death. And when you start thinking about it in those, that sense, it becomes more akin to the food industry. It's like uh, meat that's taken, you know, that's, that's taken from an animal, a carcass, and is processed. And many of the procedures that the industry uses and the rules on safety that they follow and the concerns that they have are similar to those that you find in the food industry. And in fact, I think that the, the direction in which the industry is traveling or has traveled um, is very similar to that of the uh, convenience food manufacturers. So that procedures which once required an expert surgeon to perform, something like um, corneal transplant or um, which um, some of the, the, the better known figures um, were, had a reputation for great dexterity, great skill in, in, in cutting out the cornea, the diseased cornea, and then replacing it with one that they'd fashioned out of a, you know, out of a, a cadaver eye. Um, now you have the industry, the, particularly the American eye bankers, providing ready-to-use cornea, and it's all used um, computer-generated, and you can order it online, and it's much easier to actually perform these procedures. So I make the, I draw the analogy between um, dishes that would require a great chef to, to prepare to that you can now buy off a supermarket shelf. And I think that is, that is the better way of understanding um, the current state of the industry and, and their business strategy. I... In the U.S., um, a little while back, there was a uh, a conservative group that released a controversial video that allegedly showed some uh, people at Planned Parenthood discussing the sale of, of fetuses for profit. Um, and a grand jury later indicted those who made the video rather than Planned Parenthood. But it brings up a larger point, and uh, it's what you're alluding to here, is that this is, in a way, a, a business um, so how how is the how has this been monetized um, over the over the history and uh, and where does where does it currently stand right now? What's what's legally allowed and what's not necessarily legal that might still happen? Um, well, uh, the source is never re is never um, a dead source. Obviously, has no need of money. I mean, as far as we know. We have no requirement for money in the grave or crematory, and so um, the and 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 it's illegal to um, um, pay their family. In, in I think there's really no uh, country in which any payment um, around um, where the person is dead is allowed. I mean, you can reimburse living people their their expenses. Um, 
that, that they might incur. So, for example, I know in the in the states you've got a thriving industry around egg donation, but the women where the women are are receive money, but the money is not valuable consideration. It's reimbursement for expenses and for the inconvenience. It's you might argue that it's weasel words to call it that, but it's not actually. Um, uh, like buying um, a dress or a car or something like that. It's, uh, it falls under a different legal heading. So the money that begins to enter into it is, as, is for example, the case of the pituitary glands where the mortuary staff were given a tip. So that's the first instance. So it, it, it's the people who actually do the work, who take the stuff out of the corpse. They're paid. They, they get some kind of, um, they get either they or their employers uh, get some kind, get, get money. And, and increasingly, with the modern business strategy of outsourcing, you find freelance extractors. So someone who has a, a funeral director who, or um, an operating theater staff, uh, they might they might earn a bit of money by moonlighting as a, as an extractor. They might be sent off um, um, to remove stuff from a um, from a corpse, or they might even set up a small operation, a mom and pop operation, and do that themselves. Or the other the other the big players though are the organ procurement organisations in the states. The people who win the um, uh, right to extract um, organs out of corpses in, in, in certain geographical areas, they have diversified into extracting stuff out of corpses, the other stuff, the skin, the bones, the um, cartilage, the um, uh, other kinds of connected tissue, the, the heart valves, um, the list can, goes on and on, and they 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 either do it on behalf of the processors, some of the independent processors, or increasingly they've taken processing under their own uh, uh, within their within their own um, organisation. So some of them now operate. They're huge. They're huge conglomerates and um, um, earning money from all from processing, from extracting for, on behalf of others. So the, the finances are quite complicated. And the money that from for extracting and transporting organs for transplantations, kidneys, lungs, hearts, and the kidneys in particular, comes out of Medicare, comes out of... Um, the federal government, but the other income comes out of other um, hospital resources. So it's a very complicated pattern. And of course, there's a, there's a very growing um, export market. So I think um, American uh, would-be donors should should think should be alerted to the fact that that they might be fueling an export market if they agree to. Having stuff removed out of their out of their corpse. I don't think that's a, a headline I expected. It's common in other industries, but the the big uh, the big conglomerates putting the mom and pop uh, uh, organ extractors out of business. <laughs>
Well, they they weren't. You couldn't be a mum and pop organ extractor because you you know you, that, that that's never been the case. But there were mum and pop um, eye banks, um, skin banks. They were licensed to do it. I mean, the big scandal that happened at the during the millennium of um, the um, Mastro Marino. I've got, I've got to put his name incorrectly now. Um, he was an um, biomedical tissue services that was a big that caused a big furore because he was found to have um, been in cahoots with some funeral directors and was going in there and um, taking out primarily bone but also skin um, from corpses without knowledge of an agreement of um, uh, the people themselves or their relatives and without doing um, the necessary um, scrutiny of whether this, it was safe to do so. I mean, he he was um, he 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 was um, an independent extractor of cadaver services, and he'd been he'd been registered with the Food and Drug Administration, but he'd lied on his forms, and the form wasn't very um, intrusive into his um, into his experience, and to uh, he was. Um, a dentist who'd been struck off for drug addiction. So it didn't really, you know, it was quite an easy thing to do, but there was a lot of horror about what was going on. Um, but but in, in practice, if it, if it wasn't for the fact that he'd, um, he wasn't getting permission to do so, to, to extract the stuff, and he, was, he, was, uh, he wasn't taking any um, care to find out whether it was safe the people was you know were safe some of them might were hiv positive and uh, you know it was a real scandal um in every other respect he was doing what other people were doing he was he was an independent um uh extractor of cadaver stuff and and it's a legitimate business in the united states and uh Going back, in case anyone's thinking of going into it, <laughs> free freelance extractors are, freelance are in demand. Extractor, yeah. <laughs> and going back to this idea uh, that you said, you know, people who are organ donors or, or donors may not be aware uh, of the fact that perhaps they're they're participating in this export market. What are what should I, as an organ donor myself, uh, or anyone else, be aware about? Uh, you know, sort of what we've signed up for. Well, um, the forms. Are, I think the the what you sign up for is different in the in the states than here. Very recently, we we've got one national register in the United Kingdom, and very recently they added tissue to the um, as you know tick box. You can actually say tissue, but they don't really give you a, a great deal of information about what they mean by tissue or how tissue might be used. So it's, it's less than helpful, but at least it does acknowledge that something called tissue, um, which I'm, I'm very critical of because I think it doesn't, it's so um, vague, it doesn't really give any idea of, um, of, of what's involved, uh, that, that, that you might, you know, that that might be, that might, um, be taken. In order to be a donor, you have to die in the right circumstances. <laughs> And many more people die in circumstances that make them eligible to be a so-called tissue donor than to be an organ donor. But 
at the same time, you're, in addition to dying in the right circumstances, preferably in a, in a hospital, um, you have to be, um, for want of a better word, considered kosher. You have to be considered, it has to be considered safe to take your stuff. You know, they have to go through a, a, a very long checklist to see whether there is any danger of transmitting an infectious disease. Now, they do that by asking questions. They also do that by conducting um, tests on blood, you know, blood tests to see um, whether, you know, there are antibodies to um, various infectious diseases. They also do what I call a poke and smith sniff test. They literally look at the corpse to see whether there are any troubling signs, like needle tracks, you know, that might um, indicate that um, the potential source was a, um, a you know, an injecting heroin, which makes them um, ineligible. So they go through a whole lot of procedures. And then they also interview people, the, the friends and family, and they sometimes go through this checklist, what they call a shopping list, where they say, you know, would you agree to this? Would you agree to eyes? Would you agree to bones? Would you agree to skin? Um, et cetera, et cetera. And it's quite, it's quite an arduous process for, for the person at the, you know, being asked all these questions. So it's not a straightforward thing like, you know, um, it's called the gift all the time, as you know, mm. but but the actual work involved, the actual procedures, the the word gift gives actually no indication of of um, of what it actually entails, and um, there are now professionals uh, because it is so complicated. There are now professionals trained in all this kind of interrogation of all this kind of questioning, and so. You, you might have ticked various boxes on your driving license, but that really is, you're alive. But when you're dead, a whole lot of other things come into, um, come into play, which the ticking of the boxes and which the marketing of the um, encouraging, that encourage you to tick the boxes, really gives no indication of, no indication of. It's an industry, it's work, lots of different activities involved. <laughs> Well, the book is Insider Trading, How Mortuaries, Medicine, and Money Have Built a Global Market in Human Cadaver Parts. Naomi, thank you for coming on today. Thank you, Michael. That does it for this week's episode of the Yale University Press podcast. Thank you for listening, and please, if you can, take 30 seconds to give us a rating. We would really appreciate it. And be sure to visit YaleBooks.com to keep up with this podcast, as well as the latest from our blog and our authors. For more episodes, please subscribe on iTunes or find us on SoundCloud, Stitcher, or your favorite app.